Welcome back to Podcast Recovery, everyone. We're your hosts, David O. And Eric V. Today we are joined by our very special guest, Morgan. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing well. Good. Doing well. Just me. I made a homemade gumbo today and just got finished eating about like 45 minutes ago. It was absolutely delicious. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, it was very good. Uh, So where are you from, Morgan? I am born and mostly raised in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. I've lived all around the whole area. Nice. When were you first introduced to recovery? Um... When I was in college, my first year, I actually had some friends that were in recovery, so I knew that it existed, but I didn't Mm -hmm. try to do anything for recovery for myself until the beginning of 2018. Mm -hmm. And how long have you been uh, clean? My clean date is February 18th of 2018. Awesome. Well, congratulations. And with all that, absolutely. With all that out of the way, we're going to turn it over to you to share your story with us, so take it away. Okay, thanks. Um, mm-hmm. I, so I was born in Charlotte, in the city, and I feel like, you know, I had a pretty normal childhood, like a really good family and everything, and I feel like I don't really remember a lot, honestly, and I'm sure that has to do with the drug use, but, mm-hmm. uh, but... I know that, that it was a, a relatively good childhood, but uh, mm-hmm. my my father actually traveled a lot for work. He still does, so he was hardly ever at home. Um, and I think, like, when he would come home and I would bring home grades from elementary school and stuff, he would be like, oh, that's great, but you could have gotten a 100. So somehow uh. I kind of got it in my head that, if I do better, if I become better, then maybe he'll stay home. So I, I've noticed doing my step work that there's a lot of feelings of abandonment that, mm-hmm. that come from a lot of places and a lot of people. And I think maybe that's where it started. But I, uh, when I was in elementary school, I was in like a private Christian school. And I remember, uh, one of my earliest memories is actually being in, it was either second or third grade. And like, I've always been heavy my entire life, but I guess I just didn't realize it. And when mm-hmm. I was in elementary school in that class, I remember going to sit down one day and this kid that was in the seat next to my chair, like pulled the chair back so that I just ended up falling uh, on the floor. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, you would have broken it if you'd sat down in it anyway. Uh, yeah, so there were... That's gross. Yeah, it was. Kids are, there were just kids are kind terrible. Of, yeah, from the beginning, there were, uh, there were a lot of feelings of, like, insecurity and just feeling different from other people. So when I was about 10 years old, we ended up moving to Florida just for about three years. But I got there, and I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything about the place. And I can remember being in school, and we would go outside for recess. And every all the kids would just be playing on the playground and making up games. And I would just kind of sit off to the side by myself and read a book. Mm-hmm. And I read books just 
obsessively. And I think that really became like my first way to escape things. What's your favorite genre of book? I read a little bit of everything, but uh, mm-hmm. I do a lot of uh, a lot of memoirs, I guess, and kind of thriller books. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah, I've read everything. I will read anything. So, uh, so yeah, then after that, um, I remember I would bite my nails all the time. I still do. It's a terrible habit. And yep. when I was maybe like 10 years old, I remember my mom telling me, oh, it's because you have an addictive personality. And I was like, that sounds so cool. <laughs> and I had no idea what it meant. But I was like, oh, that yeah. sounds like a good thing to have. So yeah. uh, we ended up moving back to North Carolina after three years in Florida. So, you know, I'm 27 years old. So I've lived in North Carolina for 24 of those years. Uh-huh. And I was in middle school when we moved back. And I made some, a couple really good friends there. And we just did everything together. But mm-hmm. then... Because of the neighborhood that I live in, it's got this weird division line so that I went to a different high school while all of my friends went to the one connected uh, to the middle school. Yeah. So then I felt like I was starting over again, back mm-hmm. at the beginning. And my freshman year of high school, I, I just mostly kept to myself, but I really enjoyed reading and writing. So mm-hmm. I became part of the high school's lit mag and I was the only freshman that was doing it. And I didn't know anybody and I didn't know where to sit at lunch or anything, like typical high school kid dilemma. Yeah. And I met these three girls that were in the lit magnet with me and we would sit together at lunch. And I don't think I honestly ever really said anything, but I was like, oh, I have people to sit with. And then, mm-hmm. then one day I just, I went to lunch and they were just like gone. Mm-hmm. So, I just started sitting off into the corner of the common area by myself, reading books during lunch. And I think that was a big part of my story. I feel like addiction and mental health go really hand in hand for me. Mm -hmm. It's very interlinked. Um, But that freshman year of high school was around the time that I think I first really dealt with depression and anxiety. And I had been raised like really really strictly Christian, like always going to church every Sunday, doing all the church activities. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that like they would tell us is if something's wrong, you pray about it and it gets fixed. And Mm -hmm. I felt like something was wrong with me. And when I prayed about it, it didn't fix me. So I kind of got a resentment about that. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, I wasn't big into the church thing. It just kind of turned me off to it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I, in high school, I ended up finding this really close group of friends. We did everything together. And then when I was almost 17 years old, a few weeks before my birthday, I started going out with this boy. And I want to say a month or two into our relationship, he said, hey, I have to tell you something. I was like, okay. And he said, I sell weed. And I was like, what is that? Like, I just had no idea. I was just raised, like, my parents are amazing, but we were just, my brother and I, we were sheltered from a lot of things. Uh-huh. So, and when, when this boyfriend told me that 
that he was selling weed, I, he was like, if you want to try it sometime, we can do that. And I said, no, smoking is bad for your health. I don't want to do that. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I really did some things backwards because the first thing that actually happened was a month or so later, uh, he was like, hey, I've got this Vicodin. Do you want to try it? And I said, oh, yeah, that's what the guy on the show House takes. That looks great. <laughs> I had very little frame of reference for anything. But this boy that I was dating, he was like my first real boyfriend. And I was so convinced that it was just going to be true love, love at first sight. And we would be together forever, oh, yeah. ever after. Yeah. So uh, I took that Vicodin in the back seat of my parents' car with him on our way back from a beach trip. And I decided that this boyfriend was not my true love. My true love was opiates. Mm. So I, that, uh, that summer before my senior year, I actually ended up being diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. And I would go to a rheumatologist for it and everything. And I was doing all the mm-hmm. treatment, but it helped a little, but I was just, I was in a lot of pain and I didn't really understand why. Mm -hmm. And so the doctor just started giving me painkillers. He was like, here, just 90 a month. Just take them when you need them. So I interpreted. Wait, 90 a month? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It it got a lot worse. Trust me. And uh, yeah. So then that like Christmas break of my senior year, um, I went away with my family for a cruise or something. And when I came back, I found out that, uh, one of my best friends from that high school group and my boyfriend had kind of hooked up. Mm. And my solution to that was going out with him again and smoking weed for the first time. And I'm kind of like, between the pills and the weed, I was just like, this is it. This is my solution. Mm. And it just did not occur to me to break up with him. Never occurred uh. to me. Like, this is my person. And if I leave him, then no one else is ever going to love me. And I will never love anyone else. Mm. And, I mean, he he kind of reinforced that feeling. Like, he did a lot to reinforce that. And I basically stopped me from hanging out with all of my friends, started trying to turn me against my parents, telling me everything that they said was wrong. And I just thought that's what relationships were like. I had no idea. So, uh, yeah. So I, he was actually a year behind me. So when I was getting ready for college, he was getting ready for his senior year of high school. And it was actually the summer before my senior year that I drank for the first time. I already turned 18 years old. So like I said, I did everything backwards, it seems like. And it was actually uh, some, kind of, some kind of rum that my next door neighbor, who was also one of my best friends, we found it in my parents' pantry. And I swear to God, it tasted like nail polish remover. It was so bad. And we were just taking shots of it. And I remember rolling around on her floor and going, this is almost as good as being high. (laughs) I I wasn't a big drinker for a long time, but but alcohol definitely played a part in everything. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So anyway, I went off to college and uh, my next door neighbor was the one that I was roommates with. We went to school at UNC Greensboro. Oh. And yeah, and we, we were really good roommates. We got along really well. But the problem was my boyfriend and her boyfriend at the time, because they were both just, I don't know, just insanely controlling. And I remember there would be some nights when we would each be on our own sides of our dorm room and we would both be on the phone with our boyfriends and both of us would just be like sobbing while they screamed at us, accusing us of like cheating on them and just going out and sleeping with everybody. And, and we would just sit there crying together. And Ugh. I don't know, neither of us had the balls to break up with them, I guess. Mm-hmm. And we were, I was with my boyfriend about the same amount of time that she was with hers. So it was a major parallel, I I think. Um, But it was sometime during my first year of college that it was after one of those phone calls. And I was outside the dorm, like crying on the steps. And this guy came up to me. He was like, are you okay? Can I pray for you? I was like, no, get away from me. And I just (laughs) got so insulted that he asked that. So I went back in my dorm room and my roommate was gone and I turned on my hair straightener and started burning myself with it. Mm -hmm. And that was like my first experience with Mm self-harm. So, uh, and that continued to get a lot worse. But I, uh, I met this girl in the dorm and can I say her name? Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. Okay, I met this girl named Sarah, and she became... Yeah, familiar with Sarah. That could be anybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like John Smith. Yeah. So I met Sarah, and we actually went to my first college party together. And, oh, God, it was a disaster. Um, it was before they changed all the Four loco stuff, so it was still really ah, bad. Ah, man, Four loco. Oh, I remember yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh Yeah. And we were going to a party, and I didn't like the taste of beer, but I wanted something cheap. So I said, oh, I'll just grab a couple Four Locos. I'll be good for the night. So we went to this party, and we were playing beer pong and drinking. And I just blacked out completely, and I had never done that before. And I woke up the next morning in one of the beds in the house. And the night before, there had been this little fluffy white dog running around. And he came up and licked my hand, and that's what woke me up in the morning. And I looked down at him, and he just looked different. So I went to the girl whose house it was. I said, Alexis, why does your dog look purple? She's like, you vomited grape four loco all over him last night. Oh, God. Yeah, a little fluffy white thing, and he just wasn't white anymore. So I did not ever see that girl again, fortunately. But yeah, that was uh, that was kind of what my first year of college was like. It was just just crying all the time and fighting with my boyfriend and learning how to self harm and drinking and taking pills. Um, so at the very end of that freshman year, uh, my boyfriend and I finally broke up, and it just like crushed me because. He, he basically was telling me that I was worthless and that it would never get better. So yeah. I 
ended up seeing a therapist at the school, which I had never seen one before, and started prescribing. She prescribed me an antidepressant, and then she prescribed me a bunch of benzos. And that seemed like another great solution. I thought, anytime I feel bad, I can take this and it'll fix it. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I went home for the summer and was still seeing the rheumatologist, and he kept just giving me more and more and more pills. Until yeah. it was a, a 240 a month. Which, Holy shit. Yeah, that does not seem responsible at all. Yeah. Yeah, so, that I mean, I guess... Seven, that's like seven or eight pills a day. That's crazy. Yeah. Yep, that's what I was taking. It said, take one to two every six hours as needed. So I did that. So You were just taking them? Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm in pain. This is okay. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah. So uh, I took that back to school with me for another year. And I was roommates with Sarah my second year. And I actually ended up, uh, I dated this girl for a while who was in the Sober Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And so I, I went to a meeting with her once. And I got there. This, this is the reason that I decided that particular fellowship is great for people, but not for me. Mm-hmm. Because I got there, and everyone was so nice and so friendly. And they were like, hi, how are you? Oh, are you sober? And I had taken so many pills right before I went to the meeting. But I was like, yeah, I don't drink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yes, I wasn't really crazy about the language, I guess. And I don't remember... Yeah anything of that meeting. I was so high the entire time. (laughs) So I almost feel like things kind of started going downhill from there. Um, There was a couple weeks later that Sarah and I were coming back from her boyfriend at the time's house. And it was maybe like 11 o'clock or so at night. It wasn't super late, but it was the night before Halloween. And we were driving down the street that was like at the back of our campus. And there was this club. It was called Club Drink, literally on the campus. And this is called Club Drink. Yeah, that was the name of it. It's shut down now for good reason. Yeah, I would um, think so. <laughs> we were like driving towards it, and the doors opened, and all of these people just came rushing out, like running across the street. So we had to slam on the brakes so we wouldn't hit them. Uh-huh. And they went across the street, and we watched while one guy pulled out a gun and shot the other one two or three times. Oh my God. Yeah. So we were just, we were out of there so fast. We went around the corner and as we came up to our dorm, which was like a block away, there was a campus police officer sitting there and we were like, someone just got shot. Like, what do we do? And I get it to this day. That was nine years ago. And I still think about that. It just traumatized me. So, um, I, over the summer, I had had, like, a little part-time job working at a mall kiosk, and I had met this guy that worked at the kiosk next to me, and I, he was the cool guy, so I asked him to come visit me at school, and he did, and he brought drugs with him, and then he decided, like, oh, we should have sex, and... I told him no, and it, he just did it anyway. And 
That is something that I am still working through. It's a lot easier than it used to be, but but I'm not really at the point where I've been able to talk to a lot of people about it. But I guess I'm just yeah. kind of putting it out on here now. Mm. So, uh, so, yeah, after all of that happened, I had the chance to do a study abroad. And I was like, yes, this is it. I can run away from everything because geographical changes always work. Yeah. So I ended up going to Manchester, England, and I loved it there. Cool. But it was also yeah. probably the most depressed that I've ever been in my life and the most suicidal. And it was amazing to travel around, but I still have this journal that I kept there from 2012, I guess, the spring of 2012. And it just, like, tracks this descent into complete insanity. Mm-hmm. And I thought about throwing it out, but then I decided to keep it because I can look back and see, like, where I don't want to go back to. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Manchester... I was 19 at the time, and the legal drinking age there is 18. So I just decided that was the coolest thing I'd ever heard and Uh really took advantage of it. And I had, I was in a flat with nine other people, and two of them were drug dealers. So (laughs) it it just, I thought it worked out great. So I I just drank and used and sometimes went to class. I had class two days a week and that was it. So I just kind of ran around going wild. So when I ended up coming back to the U.S., I ended up the first week or two, I missed an appointment with my rheumatologist. And basically that was just cutting off the pain meds. Uh And That was like the first time I've really experienced withdrawal because I didn't really understand what it was. I just knew that I felt like I was dying and I didn't have anything to make it better. So I started just like taking all the benzos and I was taking Ambien, like handfuls of Ambien every night. Oh my God. Yeah, it was, it was a mess. Like my tolerance was so quickly. Oh, And when I went back to school at UNCG, I started stealing boxes of Benadryl and taking the whole box. I would steal them from the convenience store on campus. Why Benadryl? I had heard that it produced like a kind of, I don't know, trippy effect. But really, it was just like being psychotic and not having any control over anything. Yeah. I For anybody listening, mm-hmm. don't go out and buy a shitload of Benadryl. Don't try this. Not, that sounds yeah, terrible. Don't. Oh, wait, we need a bad idea. Benadryl and drinking? Is that what you said? Um, just Benadryl. Just Benadryl. Yeah. shit tons of Benadryl. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. It was Ooh. a nightmare. To this day, I can't even look at Benadryl. No. Um, but, but I was just using whatever I could. Uh to not feel like I was feeling. Mm -hmm. And I actually ended up going to a gastroenterologist for some stomach issues. And Mm -hmm. he was prescribing me some medications to deal with that. And he said, oh, but it causes you pain? And I was like, yeah, it's a lot of pain. He's like, okay, here you go, some painkillers. 
So it mm. was, I just felt like people were throwing things at me. I was like, this is so easy. I don't even have to try. Like my doctor was my yeah. dealer for a long time. And mm. I was back at school and I started selling painkillers because I needed extra money to buy weed and stuff. I wasn't mm-hmm. working and so I didn't have any income. And I don't know when in the year it happened, but at some point uh, I went to get a refill of this prescription and I was sitting in the pharmacy and I was like, oh, there's a cute guy here. That's cool. And I sat down waiting for the prescription and he started talking to me. He's like, oh, what do you do for fun around here? I was like, honestly, I don't do anything. I sit in my dorm room because I'm boring. But, and that was was basically the whole conversation. I took my prescription, went back to the dorm. And the next morning, my roommate woke me up and said, hey, the police are here. I don't know what's going on. And all my other, I was in this sweet thing with three other roommates at the time. And they had all gone off and stuff. And the police came in and they said, someone informed us that you've been selling pills. And one of them was the cute guy that had been at the CVS the day before. I guess he had taken me out or something. And I was supposed to sell something the night before the police showed up. And I didn't feel well, so I didn't. So I told them, you can look. I have exactly what I'm supposed to have in that bottle. Mm -hmm. And they... They did. They looked. They counted. They were like, oh, okay. And then they just proceeded to search the entire dorm room. And I don't know if that was legal or not. They were campus police, so it's kind of a gray area. But but I just sat there and let them do it. And they they found two things. They found a bowl that I had used to smoke weed. And they found a journal that I had, and the only thing written in the entire journal was, if I want to die, it's my decision, and no one can stop me. Mm. So they told me that, they told me that basically I had to go see a therapist. They were taking me to a therapist right at that moment. And they also told me that it would be a charge for, for paraphernalia unless I told them who I bought from. And so I told them because my thing was, I don't want my parents to find out. I cannot let my dad find out about this. Mm. And it was the girl that I was buying from lived with my friend Sarah at the time. And basically I went with the police over there, parked across the street and they gave me cash, had me call them on speakerphone, put it in my pocket, and go in there and buy some weed. And my the police showed up to my best friend's house like a few weeks later. And it was, you know, I I hate that I did that, but yeah. I was an addict. I was trying to save myself. Mm-hmm. And the thing was. I knew at this point that I was an addict. I had read, you know, I said I like to read a lot of memoirs and I read addiction memoirs sometimes. And Mm -hmm. I knew that it, I knew I was an addict, but I liked reading and I liked writing and I thought I was this great functioning addict who was going to write a memoir like that someday and have all the money that I needed to buy all the drugs I wanted. Uh And that was what I told myself. So 
Uh, so yeah, all that happened with the police. And then... Did she ever find out it was you? I literally called her a few hours ago and told her because I said, I don't want you hearing about this first if you listen to the podcast. Oh, my God. Yeah. And how, he, how did she took it so well. Uh, she's also in recovery now, actually. And oh, okay. basically said, like, look, you're, you're not the same person. Uh, I can't say I wouldn't have done the same in that situation. And honestly, I don't mm-hmm. really care about it. She, I think she had to take some kind of drug class, too, but she never got, like, any official charges or anything. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so I was, I was honestly terrified to tell her for the longest time. Yeah. And wow. I only told her today because I thought she might hear about it anyway. Wow. I thought she was just going to hate me, and she doesn't, so it worked out. But, uh... Oh yeah, after all of that happened, uh, at this point it had been like a year and a half maybe since my boyfriend and I had broken up and we were still kind of off and on seeing each other. And one day during this third year of college, I found out, oh, I'm pregnant. And I just freaked out. And the thing was, I knew, I knew that it wasn't his. It was just, some guy from a random night and I knew that's what what had happened but I called my ex-boyfriend and said it was his because I knew he would have the money to get an abortion Mm -hmm. because I was 20 years old and scared to death and doing entirely too many drugs to even take Mm -hmm. care of myself so that uh, that's that's something that I don't know. It was just really emotionally hard. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I am, you know, pro-choice all the way. But for me personally, that's not something I would ever want to go through again. Yeah. So that just led to a lot deeper depression and mood swings and using more drugs. And I found this new psychiatrist who, within five minutes of meeting me for the first time, he decided that I had bipolar disorder, and so did my mother and her mother, who he had never even met. And, yeah, and he told me what it was, and despite the fact that the symptoms he described sounded like it could apply to everybody, I was just like, yes, that's me, that's what this is. So he put me on all this heavy psychiatric medication, and the rest of the year is a lot of just a fog. I, I know that I skipped classes and I failed classes and I got put on academic probation and that that's really the majority of what I remember from the rest of that year. Mm-hmm. So in the summer, I, I finally found a new doctor, thankfully, and got off that medication and got on something that I was like, yeah, this will work this time. And the issue was, like, it didn't work because I was using so many drugs all the time. And I didn't know what quote-unquote normal was supposed to be for me. Mm. So, yeah, that that summer, it was my 21st birthday that summer. So, of course, I had to have a giant party in my tiny little apartment. Mm. And I started drinking at like 10 a.m. that day. And uh, one of my friends from school showed up. 
and he had this minivan, and he said, hey, I found this capsule in the back of my van. I think it's Molly, but it might be bath salts. Do you want it? I was like, yeah, of course I do. <laughs> so I honestly, I'm pretty sure it wasn't bath salt, but I was, I just blacked out like an hour after that. I don't really know. Um, but there was a lot of cocaine involved at that party. And that was, I, I didn't really do cocaine much before that. I had tried it once before with my brother because he sold it for a while. And if he listens to this, he's going to hate me for saying that. But, uh, that was like when I first really got into doing coke and mm -hmm. that basically became my routine. I would use coke in the morning and use painkillers to get me through the day and use alcohol and or benzos to put me down at night. And, you know, there was still Ambien involved in that, too. And mixing Ambien and alcohol is a terrible plan. Yes. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember once I got called, like, 5 a.m. to go into work early at this retail store where I was working. And I had taken a lot of Ambien the night before. And I was driving just on the highway, not being able to focus my eyes. And I just slammed my car into the guardrail and kept going. Just like scraped the entire side. And my parents said later, oh, what happened to the car? And I was like, well, I don't know, someone must have hit me. So I, it, was, it was anything to keep from telling the truth and anything to keep mm -hmm. from feeling what my body wanted me to feel. So I actually ended up uh, two months into my senior year, supposed to be my senior year of college. I had this huge mental breakdown. My self-harm has gotten just out of control. And I basically called my parents and said, I can't do this. I think I'm going to kill myself. You need to come get me. And, and they did. So I just withdrew from the semester and went back home. And, you know, once again, I thought a geographical change was going to fix my issues. And once again, it did not. And my my cutting just got worse and I was like cutting words into my skin and everything. Mm. And it really took like a month or so before my parents realized what I was doing. So they contacted this new psychiatrist that I was seeing back at home and asked what to do. And he said, Oh, take her to the psych ward. So I spent a few days there. And when I checked in, you know, I don't, know what your experience with all of this is, but they were asking me all the questions like, what do you use? When do you use? How much do you mm -hmm. use? How do you use it? And I was answering all those questions truthfully because at this point, like, I just, I wanted to not die anymore because I was yeah. tired of feeling like that. And this was back in 2013, five years before recovery. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Basically, they said, yeah, you have a problem using cocaine and smoking weed. And while you're in here, we're going to up your dose of the benzos just so that you feel a little better. So I was like, well, I tried. So I ended up uh, being diagnosed with BPD. And today it's actually considered in remission. And you know, I don't know if it was ever actually bipolar disorder or BPD, 
but it was some kind of mood thing. And, Mm -hmm. but when I got this BPD diagnosis, I was like, I have, it, it just fit so well at that moment. And it made me think, you know, the person who feels like this, there are other people who have this too. And that was such an important thing for me because mm. I always felt so completely alone in everything. And to realize that I wasn't the only one, that was huge. So, oh, I got out of the hospital. I got this job at a doggy daycare. And some uh, one, one of the responsibilities I had was like going around and feeding them all at lunchtime. And some of them had medication to take with their lunches. And some of the prescriptions were like Xanax or Tramadol. So I would just slip a couple in my pocket. And wow. I, I cannot believe I ever solved dogs. That's like the worst thing I can think of, honestly, because dogs are just perfect. Mm-hmm. But I ended up being fired from that job because I was sitting out in the little area where they were playing and I was just nodding off watching them. And I tried to talk to them about it. I was like, oh no, it's, it's my new psych med. Like, I'm just getting used to it, adjusting and everything. But it didn't matter. I think they, they knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I was going to this psychiatrist at the time who was definitely on my list, list of resentments um, because I basically was going there because I wanted him to fix me. But mm-hmm. the problem was I wasn't honest about the fact that I was abusing everything I could get my hands on. So I would go in there every month, sometimes every two weeks or even every week, just crying to him, being like, why can't you fix me? And he would just throw more pills at me, like literally anything. And sometimes I got really manipulative with him because I would figure out what I needed to say to get what I wanted. And I got really good at that for a while. It was kind of scary. So I just... Mm -hmm. You know, whatever prescription pills I wanted, basically I had. And I uh, I started self-harming again after having been in the psych ward. And I, uh, I basically, you know, took a few months off from school and then ended up transferring from UNCG in Greensboro to UNC Charlotte. And it was... It was a very different environment, and I was living at home, uh, just commuting to campus every day, so I didn't really, like, have a connection with anybody, Uh and I would kind of show up to class high if I even bothered to go, and there would be some days where I would go to class and, like, pull out a prescription bottle from my purse and be like, I hope people see how awesome this is. Like, Mm. I don't know what kind of logic that was. Um, so while I was in school there, I started working at this secondhand bookstore and this is, this is kind of a cool thing because at the time they were moving locations and when they moved, they were trying to restock all their inventory. So they went to an estate sale and just spent like a hundred dollars for about a thousand books. And when they moved, they had me out in the back warehouse going through the books 
like mm-hmm. see what we could possibly sell and what was too water damaged or didn't have a cover or something like that. And those would just get tossed out. And they told me, oh, any of them that we're tossing out, if you want to take them, you can. We're just going to get rid of them anyway. And one of the books was basic text. And I picked it up and I looked at it. I was like, I'm never going to use this, but it's interesting. So I'll take it home anyway. And I, that was, I kept it for four years. And that's what I use now. It's got other people's names and phone numbers written in it. But I Can never. Can you recall any of the phone numbers? I haven't. I've thought about it, actually. That'd be so rad. Yeah, just like, hey, I've got this guy's book. Mm. Willie G's book. Like a half-blood prince. Like, oh, I have your book. Yeah, exactly. So uh, my my friend Sarah actually ended up moving back to Charlotte, too, from Greensboro. And she transferred to the same school as me. And we were just spending, like, all of our time together. And, you know, maybe an unhealthy amount of time together. But she was staying at my house for days on end. And she would just ride to school with me. But mm-hmm. uh, she had definitely developed a drinking problem at that point. And she would drink and I would take pills and sometimes we would mix them together. And I didn't really realize how bad it got for her until we had to stop at an ABC store on the way to school once at 10 a.m. And yeah, so she, you know, I, not consciously, but I kind of felt like you know, I saw what her drinking was doing to her. And I was like, at least I'm not that way with all the pills that I take, which was a lie. I just didn't see it. But she would call me some nights driving home, just like crying, saying, I don't know what to do for you. I want to help. I really do. And I was like, I'm going to call your parents about this. And she said, if you call my parents, I'm going to hate you forever. So I didn't call them. Um, And she ended up actually leaving for rehab a few months after that. And the thing was, I didn't understand that when she came back, we couldn't hang out anymore. I was like, oh, she'll get back and she'll be fixed and things can go back to normal. So uh, they obviously did not. And she ended up moving up to the mountains because, you know, she couldn't be around everything that I was doing. Yeah. Um, that summer after she had gotten back, it was the summer of 2016, and after six and a half years, I finally got my four-year degree, and I refused to walk across the stage, and I don't even remember getting my degree in the mail because I was so messed up the entire summer. Mm-hmm. So when Sarah left, like, I knew she was going to get help for herself, but Mm -hmm. all that I really felt was that she was leaving me, and it just, it triggered all those fears of abandonment all over again, and I just started using more and more and more, and, you know, the, the fact that I don't remember getting my college degree just really, it bothers me. But the thing was, I had a bachelor's in English, which is basically useless 
And <laughs> the only reason that I got it was because I liked English and I felt like when I graduated high school, people expected me to go to college. So that's what I did. Mm -hmm. So I took my English degree and started working at a video store at Family Video. And, you know, it was like 2016. People don't go to video stores anymore. So it was just empty all the time. And somehow I ended up becoming assistant manager. Never going to know how that happened. But basically I would just sit at work and open the back door and sit there smoking weed, blowing the smoke out and watching movies because we were a video store. Yeah. And that was basically what I did there. Um, so I actually, that summer, ended up uh, getting together with this boy that I had met in high school. And we had become friends at the time that that first boyfriend and I were dating. And so this new guy, we just, we reconnected. Um, mm -hmm. I'll say his name. His name is TJ because we're still together over three years later. And we just, for a while we were just hanging out and then we decided, you know, we were like each other's best friends and it just kind of automatically led to a relationship. Mm -hmm. um, but I, uh, I was just, I, he started working at the video store as well. And we would, you know, we would use together and I would say, uh, mostly we smoked weed together. And <clears throat> sometimes I would just have my pills in my purse and I'd be like, oh, I have like three left. Do you want one? And I'm going to take two. And then he would go to the bathroom and I would take six more that I actually had hidden in there. So he knew that I was using, he just didn't know the extent of it, I guess. And I basically, like, we just were happy together. And then Thanksgiving of the first year that we were dating, um, he just called me one morning and he was like, I'm calling to say goodbye. And I was like, uh, are we breaking up? And he said, no, I just don't want to live anymore. And didn't hang up the phone. And I, he, he tried to hang himself and I heard his mom burst in the room and start screaming. And I still get nightmares from that. Jesus. Like, God. Jesus, yeah, man. I just, and then the phone hung up while she was still screaming. I don't know if she hit the button or something, but he lives about five or seven minutes away. And I drove over there like swerving around cars and I was like, when I get there, I don't know if he's going to be alive or not. And, like, fortunately he was. Uh, his mom got to him in time. But, you know, that, like, really triggered something for me. And it was, again, the feelings of abandonment. I was like, I'm not good enough for him to stay here for me. And I know, like, I really logically know that suicide has nothing to do with other people. It's just because someone wants to stop hurting. And I get that. But emotionally, it did not settle well with me. Um, and I had, in my second or third year of college, I had a suicide attempt myself. I tried to take a bunch of Xanax and wash it down with vodka, and it didn't go well. It just came right back up a few minutes mm. later. Mm. 
Um, so, so like I, I got it. I understood what it was, but it didn't make it any better for me. Um, so he ended up in the psych ward for a few days too, you know, match made in heaven. Um, but, uh, when he got out, basically we just went back to what we had always done and we would just use and hang out and watch movies and play video games or whatever. And that continued for a long time. I want to say like maybe a year, a year and a half until I had this job at a seasonal wholesale place at the time, in addition to the video store. And they fired me for nodding out, standing up at the register. Mm. And I got really bitter about it. I was like, but other than that one thing, other than being too high to work, like I'm a great employee. <laughs> and it didn't go over well. So uh, two days after that, I, uh, yeah, it was two days later. It was January 1st, 31st of 2018. I was at TJ's house and I, I don't know. I honestly don't know what all that I took, but I know that the last thing that I was taking there was just a bunch of painkillers and we'd gotten food from cookout and we were sitting on the couch eating it. And I remember like kind of falling asleep with the food still in my mouth. And that's the last thing I remember until I woke up in an ambulance. And I guess I had, I overdosed and my heart stopped and my, he, TJ called my parents when he first figured out something was wrong. So they came over to the house and my mom was giving me CPR until the paramedics got there. And like the fact that she had to do that just breaks my heart. Like I can't even imagine. Uh, but I just, I knew that I was sitting on his couch and then suddenly I was in the ambulance and I was conscious for maybe 10 seconds. And I asked the guy in the back of the ambulance with me, I said, what happened? Where are we going? And he said, don't worry, your mom's up front. And my first thought was like, how did she get to Greensboro so fast? Like I hadn't lived in Greensboro in years. And mm-hmm. I don't know why that was my first thought, but that's all I remember. And I guess they, used like an IV drip of Narcan after they hit me with Narcan two or three times. And I was in the ICU for like three days, just not able to stay conscious. They had to talk about putting me in medically induced coma and everything from what I've been told. Cause I don't remember it. Um, and when I could finally stay conscious, then I was just in a normal hospital room for four or five more days because when I had, first fallen unconscious, I started throwing up and aspirated and got pneumonia from it. So I got to go through withdrawals and pneumonia at the same time, which I do not recommend. Um, but when I woke up in that hospital, I, I had always felt like, you know, sometimes I would go to bed at night and say things like, I don't know if there's the God listening, but if you are, please let me just not wake up tomorrow. Uh, and I just, I wasn't going to try to kill myself, but I just didn't want to live anymore. I didn't want to keep hurting. And 
I never learned any kind of coping techniques or anything to handle literally anything in my life. Yeah. So when I woke up from that overdose, I realized, like, you know, my life is awful and I can't keep doing this and maybe I'll try something better and if it doesn't work, then I'll just kill myself and die anyway. But I also had this moment of, like, I should have died from that overdose. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is, like, my second chance. And I don't want to lose that. So I got out of the hospital and asked my parents for help, basically. And they were like, mm-hmm. okay, find some kind of rehab or something. And see, if you do the math, the overdose was January 31st. I was in the hospital for a week, and my clean date's not until February 17th. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I went to this, like, partial outpatient hospitalization something program that was right over the state line in South Carolina. And I think I got there on a Thursday or a Friday. So then on the weekends, they gave everyone passes to go out, and I went out to some kind of state park or something with a couple people I met there. And on our way back, we were like, oh, Mexican food for dinner. That sounds great. And, you know, Mexican restaurants always had some really good tequila. Yeah. So I figured, you know, drinking isn't really my problem. I'm just a drug addict. Mm. So I'll just order a drink while we're out. And one drink turned into, I don't even know how many. I really don't. And when we got back to the campus, or whatever they were calling it, uh, like, of course, the people in charge of the program knew that we had been out drinking and yeah. had a breathalyzer. I don't know what I blew, but it was it was not great. Um, <laughs> so basically, they said, you can stay here this weekend, figure out what you're doing, and Monday morning, we need you out here. So... I left Monday morning, my parents came and picked me up, and I told my mom, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I need to go to a meeting tonight. Because they, they kind of introduced the idea of meeting stuff at the outpatient thing, mm-hmm. but, but I had never like, really fully experienced it. So I went to a meeting later that evening, and, you know, the Queen Fellowship. And everybody was talking about the topic of how alcohol is a drug. And I just immediately thought, I guess this is where I'm supposed to be. So it just, it actually, that meeting actually ended up becoming my home group. But, uh, But I went to meetings for about a week before I ended up going to an inpatient treatment, something with a little more structure. And... First of all, I want to say insurance companies are useless. They were of no help. I called them and asked what to do, and they said, well, if you don't have drugs in your system, we can't pay for anything. And I said, so if I go get high right now, you'll pay? And the lady said yes. So, yeah. So I was just like, no, no, I'm good. I'll do this myself. So I spent 14 days at a rehab up in the mountains of North Carolina. And I just, it was amazing. 
Mm-hmm. Like we had classes and meetings and everything, but the people that I met there, it just, I felt like I actually belonged with these people. Mm-hmm. And it was like I fit for the first time and we would talk and do crafts and have fun and laugh. And it made me realize that I have never really been genuinely happy before. Mm. So I came back and started going to the meetings and went off all the psych meds for the first 90 days because I had this idea that maybe what was wrong with me was just the drugs. But, mm. uh, but that proved really quickly not to be the case because I just, I was all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went back on a mood stabilizer and it was different from all the heavy medication that I was used to. But yeah. it, it just kind of brought me down to a level where I could work on my life. Mm. So I ended up, uh, I didn't get a sponsor until I had six months clean because I just didn't talk to people. I was trying yeah. to start a conversation and when I asked this lady to be my sponsor, I had been listening to her at the meetings for about the six months. And every time she shared, I was like, yes, that's, that's what I want. That's what I agree with. So I asked her to be my sponsor and she said, who are you? And so I had to introduce myself and everything, but we started doing step work together and I started a retail job that I actually showed up for and showed up clean. And at the same time, I was doing this phlebotomy course because I just wanted to get out of retail. Um, So I did. I did the course, and I passed everything. I got my state certification, national certification, and I passed the drug test for it. And that was just, like, one of the biggest moments. It's a good feeling. Yeah. It's like when you turn 21, and you go buy alcohol and you're like, please check my ID. I want to show you. Just yeah. like that. I was like, yes, please drug test me. I want to do this. So I ended up getting a job at my state's research campus as a phlebotomist, which is where I'm still working part-time, but uh, not at the moment because of the whole situation with the country. Mm-hmm. And like, I absolutely love my job. I think it's amazing, but it's not necessarily what I want to do with the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually, uh, I just started school again for the first time ever that I'm enrolled in college clean and I'm working on a human services degree. I'm really excited about it. And I, uh, you know, TJ and I, our relationship is actually healthy now because, you know, I've heard people say, when you get better, so do the people around you. And I absolutely mm-hmm. agree with that. Um, I had almost destroyed my relationship with my parents beyond repair. And now I have that back. And my mom is one of the most important people in my life. And, you know, getting that back was, was huge for me and Sarah and I are best friends again even though we live in different cities we're both in recovery now and we do recovery things together go to conferences or whatever she's in the sober fellowship we still do a lot together um and 
I kind of, you know, when I had about a year clean, I kind of got into spunk. It always happens around anniversaries is what people say. But mm. I just, I started going to meetings because, just because I felt like I had to, not because I actually cared about it. And I was staying clean and I wasn't really doing anything else. So because of my work schedule, when I got that job, I was getting up at 4 a.m. for work. So I couldn't go to the night meetings anymore. Or I could, but, uh, you know, when you're putting needles in people, you don't really want to be tired. So I found this new home group, and uh, there was this guy that was basically doing everything. He was chairing all of the meetings. He was, like, the secretary, the treasurer, and basically everything. And it was a really mm-hmm. small group. I just, I immediately felt so comfortable there because when it's a smaller group, I can really open up with people, which I don't do in groups of honestly more than like five people. I'm very shy and antisocial by nature, but, mm-hmm. but I really started talking at the phone group and maybe I told him like, Hey, I want to help. Let me do some stuff. So I was chairing some of the meetings and he was chairing some. And then I was the secretary. He was the treasurer. And about a month and a half into it, he texted me one day and said, Hey, I'm not coming back. I'll give you the home group's money. You take it from here. And I was just so overwhelmed by that. I was like, I have literally no idea what I'm doing, Mm -hmm. but, but like, I, I I was going to do it anyway. And I almost feel like the fact that I didn't really have a choice about it, it just, I don't know, it kind of renewed my passion or something. I actually looked forward to the meetings and cared about my recovery again. And that was just, uh, I think, January of this year. So I've, I've stayed really involved in the home group. I've gotten a couple more home group members. But I like that they're being small. I like that we can get really personal with each other. You know, um, yeah, I guess that's pretty much my story. All right. Cool. That was, that, that was a, a roller coaster ride for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, wow. Where, where to begin? Um, Hmm. Are you speechless, Uh, David? A little bit. Well, I have a lot of questions, so I'm, I'm like trying to be like, where, where, where can I go from here? Um, so, uh, all right, I'll, I'll start here. So how have you addressed, oh, like a lot of, like you, you talked about a lot, um, from like you, you're, you know, like that childhood traumatic event of like just a kid, like pulling out your, uh, pulling the chair out from under you, like, yeah, it's a minor traumatic event, but it, obviously it's relevant enough that you remembered it well, 15 years later, however many years later. So it's stuck in your mind and like, ha- like dealing with self-esteem issues, stuff like that. And then obviously those in- insane traumatic o- events as your addiction um, progressed and got worse. So how have you addressed those uh, like traumatic events from your past through your recovery? Um, honestly, I do a ton of work in therapy now. I actually mm-hmm. have a therapist that I love, and I am completely honest with her. 
it was something I actually started seeing before I got clean, and I was 90% honest with her. But mm-hmm. now I talk to her about literally everything, especially about recovery. And we've done like DBT skills and EMDR and a lot of really great techniques just to kind of help me process through some of what happened. Awesome. Awesome. What you got, Eric? All right. So there is a lot. Um, so let's <laughs> let's see. I, I want to touch first on oh, fuck. Let's let's do self harm first. So, um, we all, everyone here, is a self harm. They've done self harm in some mm-hmm. sort of way. David, you're burner, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And I'm a cutter. So, mm-hmm. and actually I've cut words into my body as well. I, I don't meet many, many other people who, yeah, I mean, I've met people who do that, but it is, it, it takes it to like this other, it takes it to like another level when you start like inscribing things into yourself. Uh, so. Yeah, I've never met anyone else who's done that. Yeah, I've done, I've met a few people. Um, I usually did it as a, like, a form of spite or attention uh, towards yeah. whoever I was dating um, because I'm fucked up that way. But going yeah. into the kind of like the question is, you know, how have you used the principles of recovery? Cause I mean, that's, that's another form of addiction. It's hard. It's very ritualistic. Um, I, Usually when I talk to people about it, I equate um, cutting to almost, you know, um, you know, prepping a needle or like kind of the ritual of, uh, you know, cutting up lines. Like it's very ritualistic and you're, you're almost more, um, you're looking forward almost more to the, I mean, you're looking forward to the control and the release, but like the whole ritual is part of it as well. So how have you used recovery to help with that area um, like that area of mental illness? Well, I, first of all, I want to say I haven't cut since I got clean, but yes. honestly, some days I think about cutting more than I think about using. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's not like I want to cut necessarily, or I want to use. It's just, I'm thinking about what it would be like if I did. And some, uh, there are some people in the first group that I was in here who would say, and this might be a common thing everywhere, but like the notion of just for today, and they would say, if you can't make it through 24 hours, just focus on an hour or 10 minutes or one minute. And sometimes that's literally how I get through the moment because mm-hmm. it's, it gets so overwhelming that I can't see past the next five minutes. So I just, I try to break it down like that. And my sponsor knows that I used to self-harm and she never had any experience with that herself, but she, if I ever want to talk to her about it, I know that I can, I know that she's there. That's actually, uh, I, I, that, that's a perfect answer. It's kind of amazing. Cause, uh, just a couple nights ago we were doing, a different segment of our, of our uh, podcast, which is thanks for sharing. 
and we were talking about that uh, the the breaking down of that that just for today um, sort of mantra and how in in early recovery it very much is that uh, that moment by moment piece. But like what we've seen, like uh, it, it was Eric, Allie, and, and, and I, our new co-host, Allie B, who you'll probably hear on the podcast in the near future. Um, yeah, as as time goes by in recovery, that those those just for today moments, they 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 start to extend and get a lot longer. It's not like necessarily just for this moment or just for this hour. It gets to be for this month, for this year, for the next several years. So we get to like really start to plan our lives. And it, it I'm sure Eric will hate me for saying this, but it, it, it gets greater later in recovery. <laughs> That's fine. I like that. It's not, it's not too bad. You have worse ones. It, we, I'll, I'll spare you that one, Eric. I won't <laughs> say that one. Um, all right. Um, all right, I want to go with a, a super positive question, actually. Uh, so what, so you're, you just passed two years, is that right? Yes. You're, you're like two years and three months, something like that? Yeah, just about. That's awesome. Um, so what are, what are your goals or aspirations through recovery? Mm, that's a well, good question. I mean, honestly, my main goal is just, to actually have a life that's worth living because I did it for such a long time and I would always think I'm using because it makes me feel good and that makes me happy but I wasn't happy I was never happy I was miserable all the time mm-hmm. and you know it took getting out of that situation to see it I couldn't see it right when I was in the middle of it but I just I don't know I just started going back to school uh, recently and that was, I decided to do human services and I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. Mm. And I've never had that feeling before about anything. I've never known what direction I'm going in. I'm Mm -hmm. 27 years old and I don't know just really basic things. I don't know how to be an adult. Mm. And I just, that's something that I'm trying to work on and you know, I had a taillight in my car go out once on the way to a meeting. And my sponsor was like, okay, after the meeting, we're going to go to the auto parts place, get a taillight, and I'm going to show you how to fix it. And yeah. there's just kind of that theme of that, of like, when I'm not able to do something for myself, someone else doesn't do it for me now. They show me how I can do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm just working on becoming more self-sufficient and actually having a life that's worth living. That's awesome. That's the honest, the, that's the best goal you can have. Yeah. And I, I did hear you, Eric. You were like, oh, that's a good question. I was like, yes. To be fair, Eric, Eric usually asks the better question. So when I get a, when I get a good one, I got to pat myself on the back a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um I guess I guess I'll go more with like the the downer question. Um 
So, no, really? so, so I guess, well, I mean, it, it, I relate to it, right? Like there's a lot of aspects of your story that I can relate to. Um, I mean, Oh my God, we, we can talk forever. Yeah. There, I mean, there's, there's a lot that there's I relate to where, so I have chronic pain because I've had lots of surgeries. Um, and I, I haven't gotten on, like, I haven't done a podcast yet, but whenever I do that, I'll, I'll kind of dive deeper, but I think I've had... I'm at six on my legs. Yes. Oh, God. So um, I have chronic pain. Um, and so I can relate to chronic pain. I know, and you said you have rheumatoid ar- arthritis, right? And that's, I mean, that's, yeah. I hear that's fucking awful. So that's not something <laughs> that goes away. And I'm wondering with, so one of the issues that, that comes up, you know, for me um, at least is there's, there's a shitty realization that at some point in my life, it might not be right now because I'm still like somewhat young and I, and I've started like working out more and like stretching and like trying to get my body to a point where hopefully when that day comes, my body will be prepared for it. Um, but you know, there, there is like this, this fear that, Oh yeah, I might have to take something one day, and you know, op- I mean, opiates are one of my drugs of choice. Like, I they they're you know, I love them, um, but it's it's not something that I would want to do necessarily because I can I can easily take more than one. Um, so, how do you manage your pain now? And have you, like, and, you know, you're, you're 27, um, so, I mean, this is something you're going to have to live with for, for pretty much ever, right? Like, what plans do you have moving forward in the future as well to manage that pain? Okay. Um, well, a few years ago, I actually got off of all the medication I was taking. I was having to give myself injections every week sometimes twice a week, depending on which week it was. And well, I got tired of doing that. Because my wife has psoriatic arthritis, so I have to give her uh, Humira. And, oh, yeah. And, I was taking Humira and methotrexate. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, so I actually got off of all of those a while mm-hmm. ago. And, you know, fortunately, I don't have flare-ups super often. But, but when I do, it's pretty bad. Um, I actually mm-hmm. take like a tablespoon of cherry juice every day when it gets bad. And it's so disgusting. But it really helps with the inflammation. Huh. And mm-hmm. yeah. And I never knew that before. Someone else who has rheumatoid mm-hmm. arthritis told me that. Yep. And I just, yeah, I, I do what I can just at my house. I'll soak in a hot bath with some Epsom salt or something. And I found this uh, absorbing horse liniment gel that I buy at the tractor supply. And it's like super heavy strength, icy hot, literally made for horses. It's horse icy hot. (laughs) That's that's amazing. Yeah, exactly. Horse strength. But uh, that weirdly helps a lot and I always carry it around in my purse with me 
But if I really start having a really particularly bad flare-up, uh, then I just I call the doctor that I see now who knows that I'm in recovery, and mm-hmm. he'll call in a prescription for prednisone or something, some kind of steroid, anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. You know, so far, I've, I've been able to manage it pretty well. But mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know what will happen in the future. Um, I'm hoping... Because my job is only part-time right now, I'm not covered with health insurance. But mm-hmm. when I do have those benefits, I'm hoping I can go back to a rheumatologist just to make a plan at least. And I know that if something is considered medically necessary, like really, and if I'm in a lot of pain and I take it as prescribed, then I can take something but I honestly would not trust myself with a pill bottle. I would give it to somebody else yeah. and say, give me one when I look like I'm in enough pain. Because I'm a very big baby and it's pretty obvious when I'm in pain. But it's, yeah, honestly, it kind of scares me a little bit because I know if I had something, I know how easy it would be to go back to all of that. But I feel like in general... I think I have some steps in place today, like between me and a relapse. Awesome. All right. Um, all right. I got one final question. Um, okay. So you were like, you were on a lot of different mind and mood altering substances. Like you were on, you were on uppers and downers and psych meds and Benadryl and Ambien and weed and alcohol. Like that's quite a fucking cocktail to have it in you. And a lot of those things have, have, uh, uh, pretty like long half life inside of our body. So how, how difficult was it, um, really managing, uh, your your mind and your emotions in early recovery coming off so many uh, mind and mood altering substances. I mean, honestly, it was I was a complete disaster. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like I said, I was off all my psych meds too for the first ninety mm-hmm. ish days in recovery, but I was just all over the place. I remember that first meeting because I remember they were talking about alcohol. And that was literally what I had just gone through. But other than that, like, I could not tell you a word that was said at the meetings in those first 90 days. I was just, I was just all over the place. And I think for about six months after I got clean, I was still shaking from taking so much Valium. So I just, it took a really long time to adjust to that. Um, When I was in treatment, they actually gave me gabapentin to help with everything mm-hmm. yeah. but it was like 400 milligrams four times a day and I was like I don't want to be on this much medication so oh, as soon as I got home I tapered myself off of it because I just mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to go back to the habit of taking a pill for everything yeah I just mm-hmm. for so long I had like these artificial feelings in a capsule or a tablet and and I just mm-hmm. Today, I, you know, I, I feel really terrible some days. I feel really depressed some days. Everything is not perfect. Mm-hmm. But I get to feel the bad and the good because when I was using, I didn't feel anything. 
except high. Wow. All right. All right, Eric. Go ahead, David. It's that time. It's that time? All right. It's my favorite part of the Twitter. It's everybody's favorite part of the Twitter, including our, our fans out there. It's actually go Instagram. To the but Twitter. We're going to the Instagram, but it's fine. Oh, to the, it's, to the Instagram. It's okay. Good try, though. Uh, I, I give you, uh, I guess out of, out of 10... I'll give you like a four on that one. And you jumped, you jumped the gun. Yeah. I get a 4.5. Yeah. We'll say you were almost halfway there. Um, Okay. That's fine. It wasn't my bad. All right. So Morgan, uh, the way this works, you will be the first, like this is a round table. So you will be the first person to um, respond to this question slash topic. Then David and then myself. And this week it is from Sober Pilot seventy seven, and the topic is Hi. relationships and being healthy in sobriety and finding a healthy and finding healthy partners. Oh, okay. And you can just say and oh. like and if you want to change partners, you can also say like finding healthy, like people, I guess too. Yeah, yeah, I. I feel like relationships have been a really big thing my entire life, not just like romantic relationships, but just relationships mm-hmm. with the people. And, you know, when I was using, it was just the world revolved around me and whether or not I was going to be able to get high the next day. And I just, I pushed everybody away. But since coming to recovery, I mean, you know, I said something earlier about how, when you get better, the people around you get better. And that has really proven true for me. I just, I was so turned against my parents, for example, for such a long time. I just, I got angry when they tried to tell me anything. Mm-hmm. And my mom would say like, oh, I'm praying for you. Or do you want to talk about like going to church or something? And I would just like visibly cringe. And I just, feel like you know the now I I've worked up through part of step four I'm working on it but but I just I got to have that process of like developing my own higher power and choosing it for myself which I I never knew that was an option yeah and I feel like accepting that is really I don't know it's just kind of helped me come into myself in a way and like my relationship with my boyfriend, um, people say you shouldn't get into a relationship in the first year of recovery, which I don't know if anybody listens to that. Yeah. But we, uh, you know, we were together for a little bit before I even got clean. So it technically wasn't a new relationship. There but, you go. but I told him, like, I don't know if you're still going to like me when I get clean. Because when we had even met in high school, I was using then, I was using before I went to classes in the morning. And I said, you've never seen me clean. You might not like me. I don't know if I'll even like me. But, like, part of this process has just been learning how to really communicate with people and how to be honest about everything, even the things that I don't want to. And Uh I am working every day on being more accepting of other people and accepting them where they're at because 
I can't change anybody else. I have no control over that. Uh So I just, I'm just trying to be a little bit better than the person I was the day before. And somehow through this process, I have found healthier relationships with everyone around me. And some of the women that I've met in the rooms, like they are, they are some of my closest friends and my support system. And I don't know what I would do without that in my life. That's a big part of the reason why I'm still clean is because of those people. Uh So, you know, I think I never really knew how to have a healthy relationship before because my first relationship was really unhealthy and manipulative and everything. So everything after that, I just, I just kind of assumed that was how it was supposed to be. And Mm. it, it took getting clean to find out that you can actually be dating someone or be friends with someone who genuinely cares about you and wants the best for you. And that's, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I know my parents have always felt that way, but other than them, that's really, it's a new thing for me. So I am, I'm really grateful that I've gotten to the point where I can actually have healthy relationships. Mm. All right. Um, can you repeat the question, Eric? Sorry. David. God. (laughs) Relationships and being healthy in sobriety and finding healthy relationships and partners. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's an evolving process. uh, I've found for me, um, well, just like just like you said, Morgan, like on the vast majority, my relationships and just like the quality of people that are around me has dramatically elevated through recovery. Um, but uh, I'm going to kind of go to to the darker side of the spectrum a little bit. Um, not all relationship, like not all relationships are going to continuously just get better. Like I've had some relationships, like one with, within my family get worse through recovery. Like just not like completely like recovery, not unrelated, but just in that time span, uh, this relationship has, just gone south period. I mean, I've, I had to work for four years under a manager who was honestly one of the worst employees I've ever seen at any job I've ever been at. And I've been working since I was 14. Like I have 18 years of work experience and this guy is four years. I was like, how the hell is this guy my boss? And so like, like you said, it's, it's, it's been a task for me to, really uh, adjust myself to a lot of people around me because not ever, like, like I said, the vast majority are very positive people. And those are the people I uh, communicate with on uh, a regular basis. Like in early recovery, my, um, my network ballooned and it was huge. And I wanted to be this amazing social NA butterfly and, and fly everywhere and know everybody. And, and that's what I was doing. And it, it, 
it, it was it was unmanageable and and it also like I, I met some people in in that time that were not in it for the long run and like those those relationships went away um, so it, it's been about myself trying to really prioritize people in my life and since then uh, my network has gotten smaller but I've gotten a way more uh, deep and meaningful relationship with my sponsor. Um, I, I, I feel like my network is very strong and, and talking about that really terrible, uh, boss I had to work for, for four years, there was nothing I could do about it. And I, I had to like bite the bullet a, a lot of times and just sort of roll with it and, 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 deal with that on a day-to-day basis in order to progress my life forward to the point where he left and now I'm the general manager of the company and, and it, it's to a place where I've never been before. But, like, relationships are hard. They're not always going to be good. Um, any, any intimate relationship in recovery, it's 50-50. Either you're going to spend the rest of your life with them or you're not. And it's the same, and it's the same with friendships. Like some of these people are going to be in your life for a reason. Some of them are going to be in there for a season and some of them are going to be in there for a lifetime. And, uh, those are the ones I try to really, uh, foster and care about the most. But, uh, I, I've, I've become a way more mature person through working on myself. Most of all. So I try not to focus on too much what other people are doing and more about what I can do and who I'm being. And that's taken a long time and many years in recovery to really be able to say that out loud and uh, it be true. Hmm. Cool. What you got, Eric? Cool. Um, hmm. So, I mean, relationships, I, I, I mean, David, you and I did pretty much the same thing in early recovery. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely tried to do the whole most popular person in NA thing. Um, yeah. which at, I mean, except now, for I actually was the most popular guy in NA, you just wanted to be him. That's cool, um, That's cool though. That's fine. Eh. I'm totally kidding. Half the people hating me, I'm sure. I'm just, I'll, I'll have to really think about that. I mean, please don't, please don't. Um, but like, I don't know. I mean, a lot of those relationships I don't have anymore. And Mm -hmm. it's one thing that I'm starting to learn with a lot of the, and like, I've known this, I actually, one of the things I do just in general, and it sounds really fucking harsh, um, is I purge people like every two years. Um, So I'll actually go through my phone and delete numbers that haven't called me in a while Um, or that I don't plan on calling. Because, I I mean, there are people in my life that are simply acquaintances, and I don't Mm -hmm. necessarily want them to rent space if I'm not really going to see them. Um, And that's just a way for me to stay healthy in a relationship because 
I don't know. If I'm not going to call the person, why do I have their number? If they're not going to call me, why do I have their number? Like, so I do that every two years. Um, and it sounds harsh. It does. I know that. But I don't know. I, it's a way for me because, you know, I, um, when I was 15, I, and I've grown out of this, but I was stuck, you know, I broke both my legs. So I was in a room for about nine months. The only people I really saw were my physical therapist. So when I came back into high school, a lot of those relationships were toxic because I was like making up for lost time. And that continued for years. Uh, but now with relationships, like if it, it's pretty simple, if there isn't like a mutual benefit to a relationship for me, um, unless you're family, I, I kind of just cut you. And it seems like a very harsh way of looking at friendship and relationships, but I'm at a point in my life where I don't have time to like, I also just, I respect myself more. <laughs> than I used to um, where if like mm-hmm. you know some I'm doing more of the giving than I'm receiving I just will cut the relationship and I think that's a healthy thing to do um, I think staying yeah. in relationships for too long with people um, friendships or romantically uh, it can be very unhealthy so you know why why am I going to put myself through that stress but I don't know. That's that's kind of my my opinion. It's I know it's harsh. I know it sounds really harsh, but you know, I just created a new Facebook account, which people are finding me and adding me, um, which I'm amazed because it doesn't show my face. Um, but you know, it's like I've cut out like all these different social networks, and I I try to stick to the healthy relationships rather than the you know fake bullshit relationships now and I've always liked the quote that says uh, other people priority in your life will be only an option in theirs yeah yeah love it there's a good quote for you Eric I like it finally good job David I get, I get one out of ten that's good <laughs> One out of every ten hits hit there. That's not bad. That's a, that's a, that's a solid uh, scatter plot right there. All right. Well, we would like to thank our guest Morgan for joining us for an, another amazing podcast. Yeah. Of course. Absolutely. It's great. Here at Podcast Recovery, we are aiming to expand the scope of support for recovering addicts. Accessibility and convenience of helpful services is paramount to combating addiction. We work to bring the message of recovery to every addict, wherever and whenever it is needed. We believe that a powerful voice of recovery should be obtainable, practical, and at the touch of a button. Every addict deserves to hear a message of hope, and Podcast Recovery is here to provide it. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, Thanks for tuning in, always. Make sure and check us out on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, our YouTube channel. For more information about Carly, Allie, Eric, and myself, go to podcastrecovery.com. But most importantly, everybody out there, stay safe and stay clean.